0: Hello and welcome back to Fade In, a podcast from the club's screenwriting at Victoria College at the University of Toronto, where we take a critical look at film storytelling. Today we'll be taking a look at Autumn Wilde's 2020 film Emma, which is an adaptation of Jane Austen's 1815 novel of the same name. The screenplay was written by Canadian New Zealand author Eleanor Catton. Prior to penning the script for Emma, Catton received much acclaim for her novel writing. Her book The Luminaries won the 2013 Man Booker Prize and at the time, she was the youngest author ever to be awarded this prestigious literary accolade. Emma stars Anya Taylor-Joy as the titular protagonist, who is best known for her leading role in the recent Netflix miniseries, The Queen's Gambit. Emma Woodhouse is a young unmarried woman living in Regency-era England, who attempts to play matchmaker for her peers, resulting in less-than-stellar consequences. The Wild's 2020 film isn't the first film adaptation of the novel by any means, with the 90s teen comedy, Clueless, starring Alicia Silverstone and Paul Rudd, being a fan favorite for many quote-unquote J-knights. However, 2020's Emma is an interesting case study in our journey to examine the effectiveness of film adaptations, especially when it comes to source material that can be challenging to translate for modern viewers, such as the central Austin work. I'll be joined by Marta Nielska, along with Bridget Raimondo, our VP of Events and Recruitment. Together, we'll discuss how Emma navigates the adaptation of its source material, placing the story in a Regency setting but with a contemporary cinematic approach, what messages the film presents about gender and female relationships, and finally, how we can view this Austin adaptation through contemporary media lenses. Whether you're a hardcore Jainite or a layperson looking to learn more, we hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm joined now by our VP of Events and Recruitment, Brigitte Raimondo, and once again, our VP of Finance, Marta Anjelska. How are you both doing?
1: Great.
2: Okay.
0: (laughs) Uh, I'm interested to hear both of your thoughts on this week's film. Uh, And just a a quick side note before we get into the discussion. Have either of you heard of the Bader-Meinhof effect? It's like this thing where you feel like you see things everywhere once you see it once which is what I experienced with like Anya Taylor-Joy after watching (laughs) Queen's Gambit because now it seems like she's in everything uh and you know she's very talented so no doubt about that but I didn't realize she had done so much including this before the Queen's Gambit
1: I think the first time I heard about her was uh from Split Mm -hmm.
0: so she's clearly she's clearly done a lot before this
2: I hadn't watched her in that and I didn't realize that it was her Um, but the first thing I saw her in was Emma. Emma was the the last movie actually that I saw before Cedar shut down and everything went down. So (laughs) Anya Taylor-Joy is like getting me through this pandemic. Anyway, so,
1: uh, i actually also really wanted to see emma before uh the pandemic hit like i heard they were making an adaptation and it's my favorite jane austen novel so i was like yes i i get to see it and hopefully it'll be good and it actually looks like they did a comedy instead of copping out like they did with pride and prejudice and just making a drama i was very excited for it and then like i never got to see it so i'm glad i got to see it now
0: yeah, I mean, I'll reveal my cards right away. I'm not an Austin guy by any means, so you're both far more knowledgeable than me. The proper term is a J night. A J night. Okay, fair enough. Thank you. New word for my lexicon. <laughs> um, but obviously, you, you two will be more familiar with the genre conventions than I will. So I'm curious, just to start off here, to hear both of your thoughts on how Emma. Adheres to the the usual tropes of Jane Austen's story and how it might deviate, given that it's uh, you know more contemporary adaptation.
2: Yeah, so I think uh, kind of what Marta was alluding to earlier, the use of comedy is something that is true to the text, um, and more specifically in this one, and in a lot of Austen's work, like. The, and again I'll preface that I have not read Emma so <laughs> this is this is coming from a uh, just a perspective of her other novels um that they're all kind of satirizing the gentry or the, re- the regency era and um the way to approach them is to kind of realize that Jane Austen's making fun of people in subversive ways because then it becomes a lot more fun to read um especially in the positions where we are today like With eat the rich and all of those kinds of things. Like it's very translatable, I feel like, in that effect. Um, So I think like the first thing is comedy. Um, And then also, what's true to Austin's uh, genre or that genre in general is this use of the female gaze. That's something I didn't get to talk about in um, the meeting last week, but this idea that there is a, a, a female lead and her it's kind of centered around her perspective but it's also a part of the filmmakers choice so in this case also a female filmmaker and screenwriter um importing their lens onto the story and what um things like female desire and expression or things that women care about in this period Um, that's always been made like central to austin's adaptations um, and i think that was very true in this one
1: Yeah, um, I think that to add on to that, um, in terms of tropes for Austen, I feel like to add on to what Bridget was saying about satirizing the gentry, what Austen typically does is takes a female character and then um, places them in relation to that gentry in like a multitude of ways. So, I have read three Jane Austen novels and each of them place the female lead um, in like relative to the gentry in different ways. Pride and Prejudice, um, Elizabeth is I, I think kind of like the audience, like the the view of the audience. Um, she is the satirizer. She is the one who looks in at them and makes these kinds of like sli- snide comments um, while in Uh, like in Northanger Abbey, you have Catherine who doesn't understand it and is learning about it. And through that learning process, you kind of get to make fun of it a little bit. Um, Like you kind of get to look at these quirks that seem irrelevant to um, what really matters or what we, at least in modern society, would think matters. But Catherine has to learn them anyway to relate to the world. And then in Emma, I think emma is an interesting case in a way because um you have less of an outsider catherine and elizabeth are not poor but they're i think firmly middle class like they're not really rich people but emma is like a genuinely rich person so what you're seeing in emma is a satirization of Emma as a character but also through her lens the satirization of the rest of the world as she kind of learns these lessons um through that experience.
0: So how do you think that satirization is conveyed um whether you know in dialogue or the way the film is presented or any of that adaptational stuff?
2: I think it begins with just having her be so focused and I think uh a few other people were talking about in, in the meeting how she kind of looks at the world through a tunnel vision. And if we are the audience like looking uh, through Emma's lens, then we are also seeing this tunnel vision, but we are also seeing how people outside of that are reacting. So um, the film has an interesting opportunity because we get to see characters alone. And I don't know, Marta, if, if like that
1: scene with
2: Mr. Knightley at the beginning is something that's in the books. Is it?
1: uh so there are a few scenes with Knightley that really surprised me because Knightley isn't a character you get to see a lot of emotion from in the movie like it's much more subtle um that one scene at the very end of the movie where you see him like fall in a room because i'm pretty i i guess the subtext is probably that he's realized that he's in love with emma and he's like freaking out about it which all right super relatable thanks for that <laughs> um, but uh that scene was really odd to me. I think actually potentially that's a choice I enjoyed them making because I think you see it a little bit less in other Austin films and other Austin adaptations. It kind of stays firmly from the perspective of the main character and you mm-hmm. don't get to see some of these more intimate moments with um, characters like Knightley. So this doesn't really have to do with satirizing the gentry. It's just like an interesting deviation from the novel.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, I think... His perspective is really interesting, and there's also a lot of scholarship on um, Harriet's relationship to Emma and how Harriet kind of becomes. Because if, because Harriet is that person who is not of a um, high position in society, or Emma thinks she might have the potential to, she doesn't know the um, she doesn't know the status of her father, Harriet's father. So, which becomes something they reveal at the end and he turns out to be a tradesman. Um, But she still kind of operates in this middling class position, but even I think more lower class because she's an orphan and doesn't have a a house of her own or to her family, right? Um, And a lot of Emma's kind of maturation throughout the film, I feel like, is through Harriet's experiences, is through... Um, that companionship there which is problematic and a little bit obsessive at times but it's an interesting um kind of coupling and it is I agree with Marta it's very interesting that this character is the focus of our satirization but we're also meant to like buy into her delusions at times we're meant to almost fall for it in different points Um, Whereas like, if this was a person in real life, this is um, again, like Clueless, which is another adaptation of Emma. shares not someone that I'd really relate to in real life, but because she's being focalized on the screen this way, like in moments you feel for her or you root for her. And that's like, I feel like very intentional and part of the author and screenwriter.
1: I think this is actually a bit of a difficulty with doing a classic adaptation of Jane Austen. It's that the problem is that ultimately, we don't know what's normal. We don't know what's normal for these people. So when we watch something like Clueless, and it's why I do like modern, um, there is also um, Emma Approved, which is a web series um, that adapts Emma uh, that's, that's also modern. I feel like those adaptations in some ways hit much harder and more accurately to what Jane Austen was trying to convey because We understand that Cher is like actually just pretentious and kind of awful because she's super rich. It's not like we don't have that lens of like, oh, this is a different time. Maybe this is normal. It becomes genuinely funny in in Clueless because matchmaking is such a ridiculous kind of proposition nowadays. Like it, it is funny, that's the point of, that's kind of the joke of the movie is that this girl has convinced herself that she is somehow the end-all be-all of who people should be with. And with Clueless, you kind of just see that more, you see that comedy more because you get to imagine it in a context that makes sense to us. Like, can you imagine if people, like a high schooler just went around trying to get people together today? That, that seems ridiculous. But with Emma, I think they have to be a little bit more creative. I mentioned in the meeting that Elton is kind of like a caricature of himself and that that's kind of like very different from the um, classic movie and like Elton in the uh, Clues movie doesn't do that Elton actually they adapt the scene to where he like proposes to her to like essentially an attempt to sexually harass her or not an attempt even, just like sexually harassing her. So they're able to kind of translate that more serious tone to the modern movie because they're not trying as intensely to make it clear that this is not normal. But in, I think the reason why um, in Emma, the adaptation we're talking about today, um, Elton is so cartoonish almost. Like he's smiling all the time. He's like, ca- like he's very odd as a person I think why they make that choice which I don't think is as clear in the book is because they're trying to show you how ridiculous Emma is being and how like actually insane and funny what she's doing is and consequently showing you that this privileged position Emma has um has like yeah given her tunnel vision has blinded her um and has deluded her into believing that her judgment Makes sense. Um, I think, like, another thing that I'll mention really briefly is that it's interesting to me how Emma judges people because why does she pick up on Harriet specifically? Like, why does she specifically pick up someone who is still like, as Bridget mentioned, kind of lower class, an orphan, but then she turns her nose at Robert Martin? Like, why does she discriminate against against, between the two of them? There are moments in the movie where I'm like shocked at how feminist her rhetoric sounds, because I don't think it comes off that much in uh, in the book. It doesn't really come off like that in the book.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting if I might give my two cents here. So I'm sure you've both heard of the concept of like homosocial triangles or homosocial relationships. Mm -hmm. Like traditionally it's the way in like literature you'd interpret how men interact uh, through women, sort of using women as a a medium of communication. So I'm wondering what you would both make of the fact that perhaps Emma and more broadly uh, other Austin works sort of subvert that and have women Uh, communicate each other with each other using men?
2: I mean, I would say that is not completely out of Jane Austen's work. Like, um, Northanger Abbey, for example, is very much like Marta was saying, um, of the male character that becomes the love interest is teaching Catherine about society. Um, and there's a lot of those conversations, um, not to disregard that there are female friendships in that as well, but yeah, I think the idea of female friendships is almost like the most important aspect of Jane Austen's work, in my opinion, because it's this need for companionship and it's this need for relating with other people when, especially in the gentry, when you don't have much else to do, (laughs) so you need to have people around you or like companions that you can relate to or that you can almost imprint yourself on and in in emma's case it becomes a very like toxic obsessive uh, version of that with harriet
1: I mean, in terms of speaking, like, because from the way I interpreted um, your question, Vikram, it's like, how do women relate? How much do women relate to each other through men in Jane Austen novels and specifically in Emma? And so I think that question is really complicated because that's what women are supposed to do at that time like unfortunately that's just the case like you mentioned um in a I'm not sure if we were recording but you mentioned that like potentially it's you don't really enjoy Jane Austen because there's just not a lot of action and it's because women just honestly didn't experience a lot of action back then like they just weren't allowed to do a lot a lot of your life is like who are you going to marry how do you interact in society and so I do think it's a little unfair to for example like apply the Bechdel test is that what it's called I think it's unfair to apply that to a Jane Austen novel because I think the female characters are developed it's just they're developed in a very specific time period where their values have to be very specific like it's not even like they're choosing that it's literally that they're boxed into that like they're just placed in that situation and they need to navigate it as well as possible and so the way I think about that actually is like I I like to think about um Jane and um Jane and uh, Emma's relationship, because like Emma looks at her kind of as a rival. I think up until the point that she finds out that um, Jane is engaged to Frank Churchill, actually, ironically, even though again they they don't tease you as much with the prospect of um, like Emma and Frank together um, as much as they do in the book. I think they tease that a lot more in the book than they do in the movie. But um, it's it's ironic to me that that would be what kind of dissolves Emma's animosity towards Jane. I'm not sure what it says about female relationships that they primarily relate to each other through this kind of like understanding of marriage and understanding of like engagement and stuff. But I think perhaps um, someone else might have an answer to that. I think that is interesting.
2: Yeah, I think to add on to that, um, it yeah, it's a really good point because I don't think a Bechdel test is fair here either, um, but I kind of the the things that are important to women in Emma are things that yes are tied to men but they also have a perspective of marriage and men in a kind of economic way or uh, even things like I need to pick out this hat or this ribbon and I don't know which color to pick like those I think a lot of the times it's placed as this very trivial thing um, but it's Of the walk. Yeah, they're very intentional um, choices that these women make. They're being extremely strategic with who they choose to dance with. They're only allowed two dances. They have to stand at a corner of the room and only the men can approach them. They have to make sure that they're perfectly posed at all times. Like it's it's very much gameplay. And a lot of Jane Austen's work is about games. Like if you'll just see, like they're always playing cards or playing some sort of activity in in um. Pride and Prejudice. And it's really to like emphasize that the women here are playing games. So like another layer to Emma in a way is if all she's taught is to play games with men, to strategize and have these kinds of codes of being, then it kind of makes sense why she wants to be this matchmaker or control everything around her, because that's all she has to do. Um, And I don't, I think there's an aspect of that that is vanity. And that is like, definitely a suppression of, of what women are able or, or should do. Um, But it also, it's a, it's very much an intentional and social aspect of their society. It's not just about, oh my gosh, he loves me, he loves me not. It's, economic in a sense it's 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 assuring your survivability within the society
1: ultimately um emma i think what differentiates her from other figures i was also thinking about this movie in context of greta gerwig's um little women because i think that was done really well as an adaptation especially considering the fact that the book is 600 pages long and potentially i'll get to that why i think like I prefer Little Women as an adaptation to Emma in a second, but to just kind of comment on why Emma might like the gameplay and why Emma might be geared towards this while our other Jane Austen protagonists or even characters from Little Women aren't. I think it ultimately comes down to the fact that Emma is like by no means an outcast. Emma is in no way, shape, or form a minority. Minority is a bad word, but like um, Emma is in no way, shape, or form disadvantaged. Um, besides the fact that she is a woman, um, she's not in any way disadvantaged within this society, besides the fact that she is a woman. And when you look at other characters who we consider like more socially conscious of what they're doing or more socially conscious of these kinds of um, imbalances, um, like for example, Elizabeth Bennet, or like for example, Joe Marsh, or um, Amy Marsh, all of them have to consciously think about these economic choices. They are all always thinking about them because ultimately Emma saying throughout the entire movie oh I'm never going to get married I'm always going to stay with my father Mm -hmm. that is a privilege I think we think of it sometimes as like you know strong feminist move and I think like in some ways maybe Jane Austen is making that move but I think at the end of the day Emma is able to do that Emma can live her entire life off of her family's money. She has money. And uh, some of our other Jane Austen characters or some of our other like kind of um, female characters from that period can't really do that as much.
0: I mean, it's interesting because it sort of relates to the conversation a bit earlier about uh, Emma's general arc in this film. So with that in mind, uh, I mean, Bridget, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. What do you think was like the epiphany moment for her? uh, When do you think she sort of realized this, flaw in her thinking and sort of begin to correct that behavior?
2: Well, I have a three-part hypothesis for this. Program. So I'm just, excuse me if I'm reading off my notes here. Um, I think it comes with three, reali- three realizations about three different people. Um, and it's kind of this like social awakening that she has. So one is uh, a scene that Marta uh, mentioned earlier in the carriage with Mr. Elton. He makes this like big ploy to her and she realizes that she was wrong about like his intentions towards Harriet. And um, he says in response to that, everyone has their level, meaning Harriet's not on that level. And I don't know if this is like an acting choice and just what I interpreted from the scene from the beautiful Anya Taylor-Joy, but she she kind of gives a look and I see it flash over her face having watched this numerous amounts of times. Um, that she is bothered by that statement, but she doesn't know why yet. Um, She can't really place how that has repercussions to the people that she presumes to love. So like that is like the the moment right before, but I think that like the the catalyst of Emma's um, realizing her failings in society is when she insults Mrs. Bates or Miss Bates um, to her face in front of a picnic of people and she can see uh like the real ramifications of how her actions and her words hurt people um i think that's what's really interesting about this movie and perhaps why it might be boring to some people because a lot of it is just done through looks um that scene you it's it's one word of of emma saying i can't even remember what what she said
0: it's like, it's like you, you can, you can't just say three dull things, like, or you can say more, yeah.
2: Yeah, you can keep going about all the dumb things. She just says that, and it's like the, the score cuts out, <laughs> the space cuts out, everyone just is looking at each other and waiting for someone to react because this is not planned for in their codes of behavior, right? No one knows what to do in that situation. And Emma, I think for the first time, doesn't know what to do. She's kind of just trying to push the conversation elsewhere, but she can see it. Finally, she can see it on Miss Bates' face that she's hurt her. And she can't ignore that for once in her life. She can't ignore, like, the repercussions of her privilege. Um, So I think that's the catalyst for that. And everything from that point um, is just making her realize or examine her relationships um, and who she, or why she's so invested in people. So I, then I think the last moment is is realizing how she's affected Harriet's happiness and potentially sabotaged her relationship with Robert Mar- Martin. Um, and she says, I seem to have be, been doomed to blindness, which I think really like wraps up that whole arc of, of, we saw it in the beginning that she had this tunnel vision and she's finally acknowledging that she might've been blind in some respects.
0: I mean, it's interesting when we're talking about an adaptation because Brigitte, you were able to identify those three clear junctures. Uh, and as you point out, there's a lot of cinematic language there that sort of signals to that from you know music stopping to an expression on the character's face. So I'm curious uh, to hear Marta's thoughts on someone who has read the source material, how that uh, sort of narrative process was translated, how it changed, how it altered, what do you make of that?
1: Yeah, so this is funny because I actually skipped the part where Emma insults Miss Bates. I just, I, I couldn't do it. I, I, I don't think it's not even, like, I know the scene itself would have been torture to me. Like, it would have been too much for me because actually... I like Emma. I I like Emma as a protagonist. I I think one of the most shocking things, um, Jane Austen like wrote a letter to her sister where she was like, I don't think anyone can like Emma but me. And I think the incredible thing about the novel is that I think a lot of people actually do like Emma. Like at the end of the day, there is something about her that is compelling even though she has all these flaws and it's not in an elizabeth bennett way where she's literally a genius and she makes a mistake it's in a like no almost everything she does is a mistake and yet for some reason i still like her way and so that and i think it's also just i wasn't willing to watch it because i didn't want to see the best I just I just honestly didn't want to see that and there was just like I I think actually the one thing I really will commend the movie on is that it builds that scene up perfectly because the reason I didn't actually realize I wouldn't be able to watch that part until like 20 seconds before it happened like 20 seconds before it happened I was like I can't do it I just I absolutely have to skip this part I can't do it um and it's because like everything about that scene is so off kilter like Frank like whispering in her ear and her and him like being like oh well Emma wants Miss Woodhouse wants everyone to like everything about it is so uncomfortable and the way people are reacting to it like the build-up to it is an episode of the office it is just everything most awkward at the same time and you're just waiting you're waiting for it to to finally like explode um and I think that's done like really really well I think that um the other two junctures I would agree I think that there's I'd like to hold out that Emma has a little bit of sympathy for Robert Martin, too. I'd like to hold out for the fact that she doesn't just do it for Harriet and that she kind of acknowledges the subjecthood of Robert as well and that she has hurt him as well. Um, I think and this is where I'll bring in the Greta Gerwig Little Women adaptation um, is just that. Is just that I think at times it felt like a lot was missing. Like things went really quickly, which is just a product of the runtime. Um, it's it's a product of the fact that like sometimes I felt like things really weren't made clear. Like in in the clueless adaptation, it's really clear that Elton likes share and not like um and not um I can't tie or Kai. I can't remember. The the person who's Harriet. The person who's supposed to play Harriet in that movie. Like, it's very clear that Elton is into Cher. Like, much more clear than I think it is in Emma in some ways. Like, maybe they're just being more subtle. But, like, I personally found that it wasn't clear at times. And so I think some of those character relationships um, are a little less developed. Also, um, uh, in a way that, like, Greta Gerwig's Little Women, I think because of, like, the disjointed timeline and because of some of the choices they make in like being very selective about what scenes they are showing you and what dialogue they are showing you i think in a way those character relationships are developed you know in in a way that mm-hmm. is a little more strong um and so for me um i would agree that i would agree with the the kind of, like, points of the movie that Bridget identified. That's kind of, like, how Emma changes. Um, I also think that Knightley, I'm going to mention Knightley as, like, kind of a constant influence. Um, It, it, All of Jane Austen's novels, I think are like mildly paternalistic, except for potentially Pride and Prejudice actually. I don't think Pride and Prejudice is, I think Pride and Prejudice manages to equalize the positions of its characters really well. Um, But all of her other, uh, many of her other novels or the ones that I've read at least are quite paternalistic and um, this is no exception. So while I did like, um, I think George Knightley seems a little bit closer in age, to Emma in this case. So like his, his arguments with her seem just like that. They seem like arguments. They don't really seem like talking down to someone who is significantly younger than you or like lecturing or teaching someone. And that makes, I think Knightley's influence um, much more comfortable in this movie uh, than it is in the original novel. So uh, yeah, I would identify him as like another big influence on how Emma changes.
2: One thing to add uh, to, I think Little Women is an excellent film to compare it to because like what you were saying, all of the scenes kind of, and the flashbacks uh, push the character narratives forward. Um, They are really done in a way that's like everything, you can see the uh, character growth. Whereas like here, you're kind of, I feel like you're looking for it more. You're made to like look for it more. It's not as intentional with how scene to scene, uh, with how it goes from scene to scene. Um, And I think that's, yeah, perhaps why they differ in that. But I would agree with you that Little Women does it a
0: bit better. There are a few authors whose works have proven to be as consistently enjoyed by modern audiences as Jane Austen. So it's not surprising that there have been so many film adaptations of her novels in recent years. Just take Pride and Prejudice as an example, a novel that's been subject to all manner of on-screen renditions, from the youth-oriented 2005 film starring Keira Knightley, to the loose modern-day adaptation Bridget Jones' Diary, to Indo-British filmmaker Gurinder Chadha's Bollywood-style version Pride and Prejudice, and even the 2016 action-apocalypse film Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Austen's works have proven to be incredibly malleable in their on-screen adaptations, and the various cinematic versions provide offerings for many a different viewer's palette. Look no further than the two upcoming film adaptations of Persuasion, the final novel Austen completed before her death. Theater director Carrie Cracknell's version, starring Dakota Johnson as the novel's mature protagonist Anne Elliot, is slated for release on Netflix later this year, while another film from Searchlight starring Sarah Snook, best known for her role as Shivroy in the HBO drama series Succession, is also currently in development, with an as-of-yet-unknown release date. While there are plenty of details that have yet to be unveiled about both films, Netflix's Persuasion is set to be a, quote, modern, witty adaptation of Austin's story, yet still set in the Regency era, while Searchlight's film will be a more conventional adaptation, remaining more faithful to Austin's work and world, bonnets and all. The interest among modern viewers in having a glimpse at the lives of the rich and the powerful has become a prominent recent media trend in an article for the new yorker pulitzer prize-winning author and harvard english professor Louis menand attributes the fundamental and enduring popularity of austin's stories among modern readers to the simple escapist pleasure that comes from immersing nursing oneself in a refined and elevated social setting to hobnob with highbrow characters in a way that whether intentionally or not encourages the reader to reflect on their own societal standing, and how the dynamics of class and wealth translate to a modern context. Although Menand cautions against reading any intentionally moral messages about such themes on the part of Austen, he does know that the author, with her relatively humble family roots, not a very financially successful writer during her lifetime, and a far cry from the high gentry she depicts in her novels, was, much like us modern viewers, an outsider looking in on the elevated Regency-era lifestyle. Similarly, in her column for the Chicago Tribune, Nina Metz argues that the abundance of recent hit TV shows and films about wealthy, high-status individuals, from homages to the Regency genre like Bridgerton, to depictions of the inner lives of the British royal family in the Crown, to the internecine dynastic corporate blood feuds of succession, all say, modern audiences' desire for opulent escapism, in much the same way as Austen's novels. To quote from her article, I get the escapism. Really, I do. There's nothing wrong with peering into this world as if thumbing through Architectural Digest, but it's alarming the way these projects avoid interrogating how this wealth was acquired. Not enough UK or US creatives are asking, in the end, who is really paying for all this wealth? Instead of eating the rich, Hollywood would prefer to deliver the fantasy that we all want to break bread with them instead. End quote. Metz continues later on in her article along these similar lines, stating, These bubbles where power and corruption are protected, they're not neutral storytelling settings, but function as aspirational mirages. When the rich are your main characters, they are inevitably the ones who are humanized with inner lives and complicated motivations that explain blah blah blah. Meanwhile, the rigged systems that prop them up are just a fact of life, nothing to see here. End quote. How the two upcoming adaptations of Austen's persuasion will address these themes of wealth, class, power, and privilege remains to be seen. Whether they will challenge and subvert these depictions, commenting on the hierarchical systems that underpin the Ostentanian milieu, or merely relish in them, anticipating the senses and sensibilities of their film-going audiences. That's all for this week's newsreel, now back to the show.
1: Yeah, I fear that um I fear that I, what the movie might focus on which I think is probably a mistake um uh, is these kind of like it tries to do more with the complex social relationships like you know the looks across the room of like Frank and Jane uh really early in the movie indicate to you that there's something going on there um or kind of like uh the these they try to develop these complicated relationship threads which I think makes sense um in terms of the original book I think the like Jane Austen novels I think in a lot of ways besides character are a lot about complex social relationships and how you function in the world it's just I wonder how effectively that works in a movie because in a book it's really clear but I think potentially the better choice in this case would have been to focus on characters like little women did and would have really focused on developing those characters and their relationships to each other as opposed to these kind of um, complex social constructs and relationships because I think if you had focused on the characters those may have come out anyway um, even if you hadn't tried to do that explicitly
0: Yeah I mean you've touched upon the assets of certain mediums whether it be you know a novel versus a film Um, and of course when you're talking about screenwriting there's this very obscure piece of advice uh, that I'm sure no one here has heard of show don't tell Uh, write that down Uh, but clearly as has been mentioned already there are a lot of visual cues in the movie that are meant to build up the story so I'm curious Bridget to hear your thoughts on how that might contribute to another aspect that we touched upon, which is, you know, the depiction of wealth and the gentry, and perhaps a a critique of those aspects. Mm -hmm. Okay,
2: this is my favorite question. (laughs) Because there's a lot of things that I think Jane Austen shows rather than tells. And I think that's probably the fatal flaw of of this adaptation, is that you kind of have to be well-versed in it to catch things. Um, So... Like one thing I talked about, and this is just me doing Jane Austen trivia, so coming off at any point. But um, the idea of there's a lot of characters who walk in uh, Jane Austen's films. There's a lot of characters who play piano and paint and do little things like that. And um, there's she doesn't Jane Austen isn't writing like erotica. That's very explicit in that regard. She <laughs> writes. She writes romance. That she's not like. Screaming out profanities, right, in her works. But she includes these things a lot of the time to speak to like aspects of desire. So characters who are walking a lot, and we see that with Mr. Knightley in this movie, and also with um, Lizzie Bennett in Pride and Prejudice, that is meant to like show and convey sexual frustration. Um, things like piano playing is actually really interesting because or piano playing and dancing, because those are areas where men and women are rarely allowed, like men and women in the society are rarely allowed to come in close proximity with one another, touch one another, right? Um, And interact in that way. So things like dancing or playing the piano, which is what we see in in this one um, with Mr. Knightley and and, uh, Jane, but I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Marta, is it Jane and Frank in the book?
1: Yeah, it it is.
2: Yeah, so um, which is an interesting choice I found. Um, things like piano playing, like turning pages, or singing with someone, or be- being that close to someone so that you can hear their range, like those are very intentional, intimate moments. And I think the way that it's translated in in this film is that Emma sees that between Mister Knightley and Jane instead of Jane and Frank Churchill, and that seed of jealousy is planted. So that's something that's completely shown rather than told to an audience. Um, And then I guess like a more overt one that I think you don't necessarily need to be a fan of Jane Austen's to catch on to is the scene where Emma paints Harriet. Um, So I talked about this in the meeting as well, but that scene where she poses Harriet, puts her in the flower crown, and is like having her in front of Mr. Elton and then painting her with like such delicacy and gentleness. She's literally creating her in her own image. Um, and that's something that's just shown through the actions of that scene. Um, yeah, so that that I think is a really, that was a really interesting choice to show how Emma likes to invent things. And she has this image of people that's different from their actual personhood. Um, those are just a few if anyone wants to. Add.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't know that about Jane Austen. That's really, uh, again, my 14-year-old self reading Pride and Prejudice was not particularly versed in the social ways of my <laughs> life. I don't know how I could have picked up on those of the 1800s, sorry, 1700s. Um, but I, I did want to add on to that a few things. Um, again, in terms of the adaptation, because that's mostly what I can speak to. Um, I, again, just like some character relationships that they kind of missed out on. Like it's, um, I think like it's kind of clear that Emma um, resents Jane because of uh, like a possible relationship with Mr. Knightley. I think what they do better is that they indicate that she actually being better than her or seeming in some ways better than her I think that's much more overt in the movie to the point of being like too much like when she goes up to the piano and she does like that and yeah like that insane like piano part I'm like okay we we got it we got what's happening here and then like Knightley coming over to her and saying like um you you want to be Jane is like also something I don't remember particularly from the book I don't I don't know if he was ever that explicit with her he may have been but that was like a moment in the movie where I was like oh so we're really just insulting like hitting where it hurts right now that's really what we're doing but something they didn't really do as much in the um movie I find is uh kind of Indicate that Knightley not liking Frank Churchill was also jealousy. Like I think that's a little bit clearer in the book. Um, is that it's it is him thinking that Frank Churchill is a bad man, and uh, Knightley is a better judge of character than Emma is. Um, obviously, we see that at the end of the movie, kind of with how the things tr- how with how things turn out but he's also kind of jealous of him. Like, it's also definitely kind of like um, a beginning of uh, slow burn I guess you could say um of like Knightley realizing that he likes Emma which is also another thing like Knightley realizes in a very distinct moment that he likes Emma when in the book you're kind of left in the dark the entire time like you never really know if he likes her or not and it's more of like a continual thing of like is it true or is it not true which I think that tension is lost a little bit in the movie um but in terms of uh these kinds of like One interesting part is, I can't remember exactly when, but Harriet and someone else are in a room together. It might be, it's not in the painting scene. It's a different context. But Emma starts, like, walking around the room and, like, just, like, very explicitly walking around the room and stuff. And that, like, it's kind of odd, I think. If you've never seen a Jane Austen movie or if you've never read anything of Jane Austen's, it's very odd. The kind of, like, stroll around the, stroll around the, um what turn is about it called oh my god turn about the room but it's something specific drawing room that's it it's called the drawing room um fun fact uh, Bridget you might already know this that comes from withdrawing room like you withdraw there you go to like it's essentially like a living room um and they just shortened it to drawing room um but yeah in terms of uh that was I think supposed to be a moment of kind of exhibiting Emma's wealth in the context of like Harriet's like because it's showing her um it's showing what she knows that she knows how to behave I think it in a way acts similar to the scene um in Pride and Prejudice when I think it's like Charlie's sister um Caroline asks uh Elizabeth to do the same thing and it's a little bit different in that context because in that context Caroline is just you know being annoying um but but it's the same kind of like social convention of oh the women are gonna take a take a stroll around the room to display themselves to kind of like act as the objects of desire and the objects of like interest um and uh Yeah, it's it's just like, I I wanted to note that Emma does that as well. And I think it's much more subtle in this movie. It's not like a big plot point. It's just kind of in the background of what we see. I've
2: been taking a lot of turns about the room in the past year. (laughs) I'm bringing it back.
1: I think these days it's called pacing. I do a lot of it too. I also want to
2: bring back curtsying. I think it's a very COVID friendly way of greeting one
0: another. It depends on who you're cursing, though, uh, because as we've seen, that can lead to uh, certain problems, but uh, I digress.
1: I also just wanted to note that um, I think, like, in terms of, like, the- 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 Um, you know uh, Emma's father always feeling the draft I feel like it's very obvious but it's a very funny way of showing like this kind of neurotic privilege you have or this almost like kind of neurosis and him just always being like do you feel a draft I feel a draft and getting like these five different people to like bring in and like oh another really funny part is like the servants I'm surprised at how much like explicitly sexual stuff there was in this movie to be honest I don't think they I remember like Pride and Prejudice 2005 had like I think one kiss and that was it and then in this one you're watching like them make out kind of like a minute um which I was surprised about but um yeah I remember that scene ends with like the guards turning around and it's like this constant like it's this interesting reminder that like there are people there but they're not really treated as people if that makes sense like like Emma and Knightley can't do that in front of Emma's father and they wouldn't be able to do that in front of anyone of higher class like literally I don't think that would have been possible for my understanding of that time but these guards they're just they're just chilling they'll turn around for us they'll accommodate they're not gonna say anything about the town about us or gossip or anything um so yeah I do think there's um like the there's definitely some fun ways the Comedy works to um, show you that kind of extravagant wealth and stuff, and that difference in class.
2: Because you you brought up the servants, and that's something I really wanted to talk about because I think that's my favorite aspect of this movie. Um, that kind of almost deviates or um, just improves upon what Jane Austen is doing in terms of class commentary. Because you get to see for the first time the reactions of these servants, even if they're not vocalized. You get to see them a lot more than you do in previous adaptations. Um, And there's a really great, and I think it's a really key aspect actually of of critiquing the gentry is just to see in juxtaposition how mundane and ridiculous that the servants have always known these people around them to be. Um, There is a book that focuses, it's called Longborn and it it focuses on um, one of the servant characters in Pride and Prejudice. And one of like the key lines in there is like one of um, Lizzie's key characteristics is that she always likes to walk and she doesn't care if she gets mud on her dresses and her hands and stuff. She's not like other girls. And, <laughs> and um, the character who is the servant who's focalized in Longbourn goes, of course she doesn't mind if her dresses get dirty. She doesn't have to clean them. I have to clean them. Right. Like, so I think that this, uh, adaptation it kind of brings that spirit into it with you know characters just catching sheets and just being like what the heck <laughs> or, or having to check everywhere for the drafts um, that ridiculousness just kind of yeah I think that was definitely a choice on the filmmakers p- part of like almost pushing it to a, ridicul- a ridiculousness that some people didn't like but if you kind of just go with it it really is a fun experience to to watch those little moments
1: yeah that part where like nightly collapses on the ground and the servant comes in and he like stares in and he's like and then he just like turns around and walks out that was hilarious like this man is being so traumatic this man is like finds out that he likes someone and falls on the ground and freaks out like are you okay it's 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 quite funny I I didn't I think when that happened I found it like kind of funny but you bringing that up Bridget just makes it like I I get it now you watch this movie
2: and just watch the serpents it's so much more entertaining (laughs) I think because it's just I hope they got paid a decent amount because they don't have any speaking lines right but they steal the show every time for me
1: Yeah, I definitely, I definitely see what you mean. I I also, I think that there are other contexts in which um, the people themselves just obviously seem ridiculous, like totally and completely ridiculous. But it's nice to, yeah, it's nice to have the servants, again, the servants are a nice touch for a point I mentioned before, which is like, we don't know what's normal for this time. So the fact that the servants are standing there almost like telling us how we're allowed to react, like in a kind of a, what? what's going on kind of way, I think is a really cool addition that um, modernizes the movie a lot and makes it a lot more intelligible to modern audiences.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think that just speaks to the adaptation process, which we've been discussing all throughout. Uh, We touched upon the relationship between Emma and Harriet specifically. Um, Bridget, I understand uh, you've done some scholarly research, and there are some interesting modern lenses to approach this relationship.
2: Yeah, I mean, is it scholarly research or is it just my life,
0: (laughs) It's one (laughs) of the same, really.
2: I mean, I, and this is, I was hesitant to ask this question and just not, because I have a total bias with this. I queer code everything I read and watch. Um, (laughs) And this is no exception, especially with, that's kind of how I fell in love with Austen's work. Um, I took a, a Jane Austen and contemporaries class last semester.
1: Uh, oh, I really want to take that class next year, but I don't think I'm gonna get it.
2: <laughs> just, I'll give you the notes. I'll teach it to you. <laughs> I'll give a free seminar. Um, yeah, and just the 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 how it like female friendship and female companionship in Austin's work is so easily translatable to a queer reading, um, and I was at first more of an Emma and Harriet shipper but I was introduced since the last meeting to the possibility of arrivals to lovers with Emma and Jane. And I think I'm jumping ships Um, (laughs) because I'm just far more interested. I think I love that trope. Um, But yeah, to the point of your question. um, Yeah, I think there's a lot of queer coding that can happen in this because Emma kind of experiences or navigates her desires for men or try like figures out comes to these epiphanies about uh, men's true characters through her relationship with Harriet and through her trying to kind of put Harriet on to other um, men. And also speaking to like Marta's point earlier which is a privilege is that she doesn't, she states again and again, she doesn't want to marry. She's fine keeping a house of her own and that comes from a place of privilege But I like to read that as as a queer coding because um, it's, and it's definitely important to note that she does come from like, if there is any sort of feminist approach that Emma has, it's coming from like a white feminism that's ultimately like, even if she is doing some work to liberate people around her, it's Um, self-interested. Like she wants Harriet to, Find a partner or whatever, so that she can affirm herself and and feel like she's made a contribution to the women in her society. Um, yeah, and this and then I was very validated when I I found an article and from the director saying that um, the the kind of lens that she went into with with Emma and Harriet's story was kind of a first love story, which I think happens in a lot of Austen's work. Um, it's kind of a warped first love story. Uh, but I think if we see it that way, you can also see kind of the, the, the turmoils and the inability of Emma to make these missteps, because she's navigating this affection for someone for the first time, this very prominent investment in a person. Um, and she keeps messing up and she doesn't know why she keeps messing up. And uh, that's why I think their, their relationship is really interesting.
1: Yeah, I think um Jane Austen for a while now has been the only straight writer that I can honestly tolerate to any capacity. Like I cannot I cannot watch straight romance. I think if I had to for this film club, it would be a little difficult. It would take me I already had difficulty with like the one dig romance that was heterosexual. I was like, I can't Which do is this. Also oh, by the way, guy
2: who plays Mr. Night yeah! <laughs>
1: you Bridget. I found that out and I was like what? What? Suddenly this guy is gonna pop up everywhere like Anya Taylor-Joy. that um, what was the effect that you called it? Uh, earlier the
0: uh, Bader Meinhof effect.
1: Okay. He
2: is in everything for me.
1: I just, I know. But yeah, Jane Austen is pretty much the only one that I can keep coming back to and be like, okay, I can focus kind of on the point of this more than the relationship, and therefore I don't have to care as much. I don't have to be as invested. Um, but I think, like, uh, I, I if I'm going to steer to either of them, yeah, like, I think probably one of my bigger criticisms of Jane Austen is that even though she has female companionship, I feel like she's always she's always setting women up against each other in some capacity and then not resolving the problems between them. Like there, and there are examples where this is valid. Like Caroline is awful. I hate her. So like, I don't need her to be redeemed. We're good. Um, but from that same example, like from Pride and Prejudice, um, I don't know. I feel like Lydia could be a little redeemed. I don't think Lydia deserved kind of the treatment that she got in Pride and Prejudice. Or if, for example, in in, um, in uh, Emma with like Jane, I think that in the novel, there's a more solid conclusion. Uh, in the novel, you kind of get the indication that Emma is willing to be friends with Jane and that they kind of have a positive relationship moving forward, or at least I felt. Um, that that was the case uh, when I read it which again lowly 17 year old doesn't really count all that much but that's what I felt when I read Emma as opposed to the movie where they kind of leave it off weird Um, also uh, I just wanted to I feel like Jane's character in general was done really oddly because Jane is very like in this one, she's characterized I feel as kind of being like just shy or maybe a little bit like you know um, reserved. But in the in the novel, and I feel like this is if if it comes up, we can talk about it a little bit more because I think that what um, movies really struggle with is the unreliable narrator. And I think especially for Emma, the unreliable narrator makes a lot of sense, even though it's from like a it's from like an omniscient perspective, like most of um, Jane Austen's novels. But for um, Jane you get a lot more of a characterization that Jane's uh, shyness or that her reservation is hostile. I think Um, like she's uptight. She's not well-versed in society. She's awkward. I think she comes off as a more Mr. Darcy character in the novel than she does in the movie. And because of that, you're able to kind of understand why Emma doesn't like her but it also makes more of a reconciliation possible because you can see more of an arc in terms of in terms of how the character's relationship improves, like the whole rivals to lovers things. Also a huge fan. Um, but with Harriet, I, I I struggle with Harriet and Emma, even though I do think that I see why that's the case. Like I think, yeah, like a lot of their like intimate moments are like very intimate. I think you definitely could read it through a queer lens. Um, that being said, I view their relationship more like I view Northanger Abbey's, Catherine's, and Henry Tilney's where Emma plays the Henry Tilney character and just basically like teaches Harriet what to do except you know in Northanger Abbey it's arguably more problematic because he's technically giving her good advice um when in Emma it very quickly is revealed that she is not giving giving Harriet good advice or it is revealed at some point that that's the case um but yeah I do think there's a kind of Imbalance in that relationship that I'm not entirely comfortable with uh, that I think the only reason why it kind of works in Emma and it's like fine is because um, Emma is ultimately taken down a peg. Um, Emma is ultimately the one who has to apologize and Emma is ultimately the one who has to like um, go to Robert Martin and do that and I think actually the moment where Emma says to Mr. Knightley, like, no, I have to go to Robert and I have to apologize. That's like a really massive moment for her. I think that's that's potentially the true moment where you're like, oh, this character has actually become a person that's like a person as opposed to a flat characterization of the gentry.
2: I think also to that point, what we forget is that these characters, because of the context of the time, Right, and I think I would agree with you. This is what Clueless is able to do, uh, perhaps better, is that they're still really young, for the most part. These these protagonists, Emma is stated at the be- like in the in the beginning of the movie, in the first lines, she's 21, right? Harriet's 17. Um, these characters are really young and kind of in a coming of age narrative, in a sense, but the stakes are quite mature for them, um, in comparison to Clueless, where it's not marriage. <laughs> and they're making it explicitly clear at the end that she's like, I'm 17, I'm not getting married. <laughs> like, that's ridiculous. Um, so, yeah, I think just to add on to Marta's point there, it's, it's these, these failings, and these, these lack, this lack of communication in female friendship is something I relate to a lot strongly, especially, as I mean, I'm still a young person, what am I saying? (laughs) But um, in high school, like I can see a lot of miscommunications that parallel in different relationships that I I had. And I think in in many instances, I was both the Harriet and the Emma um, in different relationships. Um, So I think, yeah, that's also a thing to to keep in mind and perhaps why um, Jane Austen's adaptations almost work is that there's not a a reminder that these characters are meant to be young not to excuse their actions um, but just recognizing moral failings is the moral failings that happen are in part because they haven't had the experience of life yet and they're pressured into this position where they're doing things um, and expected to have that experience of life uh, compared to the men who are a lot of the times like a lot older than them and have that that experience of the world um maybe that's just my hot take but
0: it's fascinating to hear both of your perspectives on this uh so just to round things off here Bridget I think you have a, a bit of trivia to share about the location of the filming I do I didn't know you were including this question I think the readers would definitely or the listeners rather would definitely benefit are we we're switching mediums we're talking <laughs> about novels and we're going to audio so apologies for that
2: Okay, so I'll just I'll just explain <laughs> in vivid detail this fun fact of mine. Um, so, in uh, Emma, and uh, just a reminder, Emma with a period at the end. It's very intentional in this adaptation. Emma. Um, <laughs> there is uh, Mr. Knightley's estate, uh, which is called Donwell Abbey, and it's that beautiful room with the like painting in the background with all those figures. And in the beginning, it's where he walks into and has that whole, like, (laughs) uh lies on the ground. And it's just in in utter turmoil in his million dollar estate. And um, yeah, so that room is kind of like the penultimate um, setting that's used in almost every contemporary uh, adaptation of a regency. film or TV show nowadays. So it's actually, the I found out, it's called the Wilton House, which is an estate in the English countryside near Salisbury in Wiltshire, England. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, And it has been used as a filming location for many period and contemporary films and TV since 1971. And specifically this room, which is called the Double Cube Room. It's a very creative name. Um, is in, uh, it's used in Pride and Prejudice, the 2005 adaptation. It's Pemberley, which is Mr. Darcy's estate. Um, it's used in Bridgerton, which is very popular from this past year. It's Queen Charlotte's whole hall where everything happens. Um, and Vikram, looks so disinterested. <laughs> oh,
0: uh, I, I get have you seen any of these points in, in passing? Have, uh, you seen, have you seen Tomb Raider? Uh, I've not seen it in its entirety, but I didn't realize that would be the thing that you'd reference in the conversation about feminism and representation. I mean, really, I mean, it, it's also in tomb- this this
2: uh, estate is used in Tomb Raider, and it's also used in The Crown. Um, I, they use like a lot of the exterior for action films, actually. So <laughs>
0: you might want to check. The, out the more, that. the more you know. The more you know.
1: I, I just wanted to say that I actually had a, it's funny you bring this up, like just Regency places in general and movies and stuff, because I had a conversation a while ago with a friend of mine, um, and I, I was like, why do, why are all white women obsessed with Regency like I don't understand it I I actually don't there's a there's a romantic comedy called Austin Land that actually makes fun of this phenomenon um but I I asked her like because we were talking about romantic comedies and I was like what's your favorite and she was describing these Regency romantic comedies to me and I was like what <laughs> and uh she her answer was like I think it's the yearning and I was like that's I feel like very apparent and Emma I was like in that Play in that case, the the queer people should also be circulating to it.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, it's it's interesting to enter into this space of like the Janeites, and I'm just tiptoeing in it because I'm not a fully white woman. Um, so like my my kind of like frustration with a lot of Jane adaptations is I think at this point we can have a more diverse cast and kind of just do that. Um, which is, again, like, it's a, it, that's a person-by-person opinion. But, yeah, I think, speaking to, like, the queerness of it, Pride and Prejudice 2005 is, like, on the level of Twilight for a lot of, for a lot of um, queer women on... Uh, there's a whole thing on TikTok. It's a whole thing <laughs> um, of just, like... And Kira Knightley as the sort of queer awakening um, in that, and also Pirates of the Caribbean. But, um, and then also the yearning is very true. Another favorite trope of mine that is just found in every single Regency is like the near touch. It's like the hands that are just like, you can't, I need to like audibly describe this, but when there's like a pinky dance or (laughs) there's like like, a near touch or that scene in uh, Pride and Prejudice that's kind of been turned into a meme where because they can't touch and it's like, taboo to touch at that time when he touches her hand and lets her into the carriage with like a gloveless hand Um, and he flexes his hand and there's a there's a close-up of this just showing you a whole other culture here (laughs) and every every person predominantly women, who watched that scene freak out and it's not like again in Pride and Prejudice there's no kiss scenes except for in the American version they put a kiss scene in at the end Um, but in the UK version, it's cut, Um, because it's meant to be, like, this, like, unbelievable amount of tension, of romantic tension that's never resolved, and so I don't know why that's something that appeals to me in narratives, but it does, so.
1: I mean, I think, like, I feel about Regency the same way I feel about World War II movies, um, which is, like, not even that, like i do think they should be more diverse but moreover that they could there could just be more stories like this for more diverse cultures it's like you know <laughs> what i would like to see a world war ii movie set in japan or china i just feel yeah. i would like to see that and i feel like there's got to be a lot of these themes of like regency like i guess i i do i think like things like um Having more diverse casts and like um casting like more people in these movies would be really great and like adaptations like this, especially because they're so popular. But I think for me also, I would just like seeing a lot of these themes that people are obsessed with, like the yearning and the kind of like near touch and everything in different cultures because there's got to be these themes that pop up in different cultures and like that's kind of like always my thing is like I guess like maybe I should also just look outside of like western movies for that I'm sure I could find it um but that I would like to just see more diverse subject matter in general which is why I think um I stick to my Jane Austen Regency and don't really move outside of that. I'm like, this is literature. I will stay within this bandwidth because it is literature and I can justify it. And then I like, don't do anything else.
0: I mean, I'm clearly long overdue to check out Austen's work. So perhaps I should uh, take note from this conversation, Uh, but thank you so much, Bridget and Marta for your insights. This has been great. Thanks Vikram. Thanks for listening to our conversation. You can keep up with all of SVC's activities, including our past journal publications and upcoming club meeting information on our website, linked in the episode description. I'd also like to take a moment to thank the Victoria University Student Administrative Council, VUSAC, and the University of Toronto Students' Union, UTSU, for their continued support of our club, Screenwriting at Victoria College. Finally, I want to give a big shout out to the entire podcast team. Our audio editor, Karine Langmuir, our writing and research team, Nujat Tabassum and Kaelin Ball. Our content coordinator, Connie Zen, And our content head and co-host, Marta Nielska. This has been Vikram Nijawan, Fade to Black.